Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Morning, church. It is good to see you all. Nice to see some new faces today. So, uh, whether it's your first time with us or your last time, we're glad that you're here. And uh, <clears throat> this morning we are wrapping up the vision series that we've been in for the last couple months entitled Knowing, Loving, and Serving. And uh, what we're going to do today is to consider what it might look like to take all this stuff that we've been talking about for the past couple months and to figure out how to actually put it into practice. Um, Jesus has a really clear teaching towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount where he talks about those that build their house upon the rock versus those that build their house upon the sand. And the point that he's making is that those who hear his teachings and put them into practice are like those who build their house upon the rock. And those who hear his teachings and agree with them are those who build their house upon the sand. Jesus' little brother James in his epistle would say a similar thing about the tendency that people would have to be hearers of the word and stop there rather than allowing the spirit to empower us to become doers of the word. And so that's what we're talking about this morning, and we're going to be using Psalm 25 as a guiding prayer to help us seek God's wisdom for building a life worth living, a life worthy of the gospel. So if you've got a Bible, we'll be in Psalm 25 this morning. We only read uh, the first half of the psalm, but later on um, in the passage, we get a little bit more uh, insight into the context in which David, the psalmist, finds himself. Let me read for you verses 16 through 19. David writes, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I'm lonely and afflicted. Relieve the troubles of my heart and free me from my anguish. Look on my affliction and my distress. Take away all my sins. See how numerous my en- are my enemies and how fiercely they hate me. Long story short, this is the prayer of a person who's not doing very well. This is the prayer of a man whose life isn't going the way that he had hoped. And whatever kind of situation David finds himself in, he sums it all up in the very uh, last verse. Deliver us, O God, from our troubles. This is the prayer of a person who's in trouble. which we know well what that's like. Life is full of trouble. Our lives are full of troubles. And just like David, for us, sometimes trouble comes from inside us. The trouble that comes from within. From the fact that we're broken people. Maybe it's our own doing, our own sin, or our own stupidity that's led us here. Or maybe we've just come to a place where we've had to admit 
that we're not okay, that we're losing our battle with anxiety, depression, grief, anger, fear, whatever it is. For me, the majority of this past week has been a strong battle with depression. Troubles from the inside. And it's so incredibly frustrating because I know I'm not nearly as happy as I should be. I love my life. I have a great life. And yet somehow there's this daily struggle. So some troubles come from the inside. Other troubles for David and for us come from external sources, from the outside, from the fact that we're living in a broken world, from the fact that things aren't the way they should be, that life hasn't gone the way it was supposed to, that something or someone significant has been taken from us and we'll never get it back. Sometimes even if we've done everything right, things still didn't work out. And so whether the troubles that we're talking about are those from within or those from the outside, what happens is that in the midst of troubles, we find ourselves looking at our life and beginning to ask some hard questions. One of the slogans that we often use in the world of addiction and recovery is that my best thinking got me here. It's the idea that when my life is a mess, when I'm at rock bottom, as much as I may want to blame other people or circumstances, I have to acknowledge that ultimately it's the choices that I made along the way that have directed the course of my life and ultimately led me to this mess. My best thinking got me here. Or in the world of business, they say that your organization is perfectly designed to give you the results you're currently getting. <laughs> Meaning if we want different results, then we can't just keep doing the things the same way we've been doing them. Something has to change. And so when we find ourselves in times of trouble, these are the kinds of questions we ask. Did my best thinking get me here? Is my life perfectly designed to give these kinds of results? Am I sure that I want to keep going the way that I've been going? These aren't bad questions to ask because the truth is we all know we only have one life to live. We get one shot at this thing. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste this one life I've been given. And so when I read the words of David's prayer, specifically back at the beginning in verses one and two, they sound really strong, really faithful, really spiritual, and I think there is something to that, but I don't hear them so much as a resolute declaration of trust in God. I hear them as cries of desperation. Listen again to verse two. I trust in you. Do not let me be put to shame, nor let my enemies triumph over me. So David is declaring his trust in God, but in the midst of whatever trouble he finds himself in, he's calling out to God saying, now God, I'm trusting in you. 
I'm trusting that you're not going to let me down. I'm trusting that you won't let me be put to shame. I'm trusting that you're going to take care of me. This is the cry of Psalm 25. And really the question beneath it. If I put my trust in God, will I be put to shame? Isn't that what we fear too? That at the end of the day, we might find out that we've built our life upon a lie. Because who knows, maybe there really is a better way to live. Maybe I could have been living differently all along. Maybe all the people in my life who think I'm crazy for trusting God, well, maybe they're actually right. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you right now know at least one person who not long ago had a rock-solid faith in Jesus, and now they're questioning whether they believe any of it? We all know those people. I have several good friends going through it right now, some of them pastors, trying to figure out, do I want to keep going down this path? Or is there some better way to live? And undoubtedly, some in this room are asking those same questions this morning. They're not bad questions. David knows what that's like. Within God's very revelation to us in the Bible, we have an invitation to acknowledge those kinds of fears, those kinds of doubts, those kinds of feelings. We have solidarity with the biblical authors who have been there, who can say, yeah, I get it. Me too. I know what it's like. But thankfully, we also have the gift. Specifically within the Psalms, the very words that God would want to teach us to pray. And so in Psalm 25, we have this amazing prayer to pray when we find ourselves disoriented by doubt or perplexed with pain in the midst of trouble. Psalm 25 is an acrostic you probably haven't written many acrostics since uh, the kindergarten days or whenever that was. It follows the Hebrew alphabet. Each line of the psalm starts with the next letter of the alphabet, and that's obviously lost in the English translation. But here's the idea. David is bringing his whole self before God from A to Z. The whole spectrum of human experience, all his pain, all his doubt, all his fear, every letter of the alphabet, it's all there. And so that's the first thing we learn in this prayer, that in the midst of doubt, disorientation, pain, the temptation to wander and to look elsewhere, the invitation is to bring it all, the A to Z, uncensored before God. Don't just carry it around, carry it to him in prayer. But it doesn't stop there. This isn't just a prayer of self-expression. This is also a prayer of petition. And there's something that David is asking for. 
And to be honest, it's not what we would expect. It's not what I expected. In the midst of this prayer of, uh, of trouble, of doubt, of fear, of danger, he doesn't just ask for comfort or for relief or for answers. He asks for something else. Look in verse four. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. How interesting. Look at what David asks of God in the midst of trouble. He asks, show me, teach me, guide me. This is a plea for help. This is an acknowledgement that he can't do it on his own, that his best thinking has gotten him his here, that his life is perfectly designed to give him the results that he's currently getting. He's acknowledging in the midst of his trouble that he needs God. And again, he's not primarily, primarily asking for relief or for comfort. What he's asking is to know God's ways and to learn to walk in God's paths. See, for David, in the midst of trouble, with great humility and wisdom, he doesn't ask for different circumstances. He asks to be made into a different kind of person. Because he knows that circumstances, good or bad, are going to come and go. And they aren't enough to build your life upon. But the ways of the Lord are forever. So he doesn't ask for God to change his circumstances. He's asking God to change him. And to teach him to live in the ways of God. For the past couple months, we've been walking through our six biblical practices that are essentially our way of trying to distill down what might it look like for us as the Antioch community to follow Jesus in the time and place in which we find ourselves. And for us, these practices represent an active commitment to reorient our entire lives around the ways of God. These practices, we've walked through them almost every week. So one last time, the practice of communion. This has to do with our relationship to God, and it's the invitation toward a life of abiding in Christ. The practice of formation, the relationship that God has given us with ourself, the one that he wants to make healthy and whole and redeemed, and the invitation to become who we are in Jesus. Is the invitation to the practice of community. This is the relationship that we have with one another within the church and the invitation to share life together deeply as a functional family. The practice of hospitality, which has to do with living within our city, within our neighborhood, within our workplace, our daily lives, 
and learning how to be a neighbor in the way of Jesus. The practice of justice, which has to do with <clears throat> living amongst those in a, in, a, in a world of injustice, oppression, brokenness, and pain. And he calls us to a life of remembering the poor, reorienting our lives around the poor. And finally, as Sean led us last week, the practice of Sabbath, recognizing ourselves as part of God's creation and an invitation to a life of celebrating the good. So obviously, these aren't magic words. We're not claiming that we found the fix or anything like that. This is simply our way of trying to distill down what does it really look like, not just to nod our heads in agreement with Jesus, but to get our hands and feet dirty following in the dust of our rabbi, believing that Jesus is our savior and he's also our teacher. He's our discipler, the one who's teaching us how to be human. Now here's what I wanna emphasize again. That these six practices um, are not the keys to success in life. This isn't the secret. This isn't the promise that if you do these six things, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and things are going to go well for you. That is not the invitation of Christ. These practices are our way of trying to articulate the keys to becoming the kind of people that look like Jesus no matter what life brings us. So back to where we started. What would it look like to not just be hearers of the word, but doers? What would it look like to build our lives upon the ways of God? What would it look like to join in the prayer of the Psalms and let David's prayer become ours? Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. For centuries now, Followers of Jesus have had a term that they've used to describe an intentional reorientation of life around the ways of God. There's a term that's been used by lots of different mothers and fathers in the faith to say, I'm going to lay out a plan or a budget for my life, if you will, designed to keep Christ at the center of everything. And that term is a rule of life, a rule of life, an ancient Christian practice, an intentional conscious plan to keep Christ at the center of everything you do. It's a set of commitments for ordering your life around God and the things that he's called you to. And so... Um, If you're anything like me, when you hear that phrase, rule of life, it doesn't sound very gospel-y to you. Many of us have come to Christ out of a religion marked by rules. It's not rules for life. It's a rule of life. It's an invitation to order your life in such a way that you're going to maximize the space in which the Spirit of God is able to fill. We're going to talk about this 
in a little bit more detail in just a moment, what would it look like for us as a church to pursue a shared rule of life, a shared commitment to following the way, way of Jesus? But some of you are already going, I'm out. I don't have time for that or I'm not interested in anything that sounds constraining or legalistic or works-based or something like that. I get that, I get that, I get that. But here's the thing. You already have a rule of life. You already have a way that you're spending your hours, your days, your weeks, your months, and your years. It may not be written down, but you have a rule of life that you follow and it's shaping you. Your rule of life is determining the kind of person you're becoming. Let me give you a couple kind of silly examples just to make the point. Every once in a while, it's interesting to see what would happen if somebody were to write down their rule of life. On Instagram recently, Mark Wahlberg wrote his down. And uh, let me share it for you. 2.30 a.m., wake up. 2.45, prayer time. 3.15, breakfast. 3.40, workout number one. 5.30 a.m., post-workout meal. 6 a.m., shower. 7.30, golf. 8 o'clock, snack. 9.30, cryo chamber recovery. 10.30, another snack. 11 a.m., family time, meetings, work calls. 1 p.m., lunch. 2 p.m. meetings, work calls, 3 p.m. pick up kids, 3.30, another snack, 4 o'clock, workout number two, 5 p.m. shower, 5.30 p.m. dinner and family time, 7.30 p.m. bedtime. Okay, how many of you, does that sound pretty familiar? <laughs> how many of you spend more time having snacks than going to work? Now, what's interesting, I mean, you look at Mark Wahlberg and you're going, how does a guy maintain that level of physique? Well, his rule of life is how he does it. You wonder, how does a guy like Mark Wahlberg or Pastor Pete maintain the body that they do? <laughs> it's obvious. It doesn't just happen. Okay. Here's another one. Hunter S. Thompson, who wrote Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, another role model. A journalist spent a significant amount of time with him observing his daily life. Here's his rhythm. 3 o'clock p.m., rise. 3.05, scotch, morning paper, cigarette. 3.45, cocaine. 3.50, another glass of scotch. 4.05, coffee, another cigarette. 4.15, cocaine. 4.16, orange juice, cigarette. 4.30, cocaine. 4.54, cocaine. 5.05, cocaine. 5.11, coffee and cigarettes. 5.30, more ice in the scotch. 5.45, cocaine. 6 p.m., weed to take the edge off. <laughs> 7.05, Woody Creek Tavern for lunch. 9 p.m., cocaine. 10 p.m., drop acid. 11 p.m., cocaine and weed. 11.30, cocaine, midnight, start writing. From 12.05 to 6 a.m., Wally's writing, cocaine, weed, scotch, coffee, Heineken, cigarettes, grapefruit, cigarettes, orange juice, and gin. At 6 a.m., in the hot tub, champagne, Dove bars, and fettuccine Alfredo. 8 a.m., sleeping pills. 8.20 a.m., sleep. Here's the point I'm trying to make. Um, <laughs> 
you have a rule of life that probably doesn't look as extreme or as ridiculous as either of those guys. But your rule of life, whether it's conscious or unconscious, whether it's intentional or unintentional, whether it's written down or just lived, is something that is shaping you. Either of these guys, that rule of life isn't just what they do. These aren't just things they do. This is how they are becoming who they are becoming for better or worse. Your rule of life radically determines the person you'll become. And so our question isn't whether we have a rule of life or not. Our question is, is our rule of life cooperating with the spirit of God to form us into people who look like Jesus? Is our way of ordering our minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, and years conducive to life in the way of Christ? That's the question that we're asking. Because again, we only get one shot at this. And I don't know know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of this life with regrets or with shame. And I can resonate with the prayer of David that says, yeah, God, I trust you. But it's not an impressive, yeah, I trust you. It's, God, I'm trusting you. I'm going to keep trusting you. And not just nodding my head in agreement. But I'm going to trust you to the point where I'm asking you to show me your ways and teach me your paths. G.K. Chesterton famously put once that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. And so my invitation to us as a community as we kind of transition out of this season of fall, as we prepare to enter into a new cycle of the church calendar in a couple weeks, beginning with the season of Advent together, it's to ask this question together, what would it look like for us to reorient our lives around the vision of Jesus for who we are to become? And so when we talk about communion, my question for you is, where does that fit into your rule of life? Where do you prioritize being with God, enjoying his presence, reading his word, learning from him about who he says who he is and who he says you are? It can be played out in a million different ways. And for those of you that are here, which is all of you, (laughs) this is a legit expression not just of communion but yeah saying we are going to tithe the first hours of our week set those aside to come and to worship God good job being here formation 
this invitation to a reconciled relationship with yourself. Where in your rule of life, where in your daily or weekly rhythms are you creating space for your own transformation into Christ-likeness? What help are you seeking for me, this looks like a commitment to meet regularly with my spiritual director, regularly with my therapist, regularly with peers and friends in ministry who have access to my life and can help me pay attention to the places that God is wanting to bring transformation. What does that look like for you? For community, for our shared relationship as a church, where in your rule of life are you creating space for relationships to develop and to grow and to mature? Where in your life are you creating space for the love of Jesus to mark the ways that we see and treat one another? You're going to eat roughly 21 meals this week. How many of those will be with brothers and sisters in Christ? When it comes to hospitality, navigating everyday life with our neighbors in Central Oregon, those that are our literal neighbors in our cul-de-sac or in our apartment complex or whatever, those at work, those in our sphere of play or influence or career or whatever it is, what does it look like to extend the hospitality of Jesus? Not just sharing your faith, but sharing your life and learning how to love our neighbors as Christ has called us to. As people who are committed to the way of justice, where does that show up in your rule of life? What does it look like for us to actually give ourselves to the pursuit of justice? Not just reading books, not just liking posts, but in real time, disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of the vulnerable. And finally, Sabbath. Where in your rule of life is there room for you to let God be God? For you to trust that the world will keep on turning without you? For you to rest and to simply be We're obviously not going to go through and say everybody needs to do this many things, this many hours, this many days, anything like that. What we're asking you is something way harder than that. To actually do the prayerful work of discerning how the Holy Spirit would call you to reorient your life around the life and the mission of Jesus. I want to close with an invitation from Jesus that sounds actually really similar to the heart that David has in Psalm 25. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Again, there's a surprising twist in what Jesus does here, what the Bible does here. 
It acknowledges the difficulty of life, that we're often burdened, burnt out, weary, and tired. And the invitation is one of rest, but not rest the way we think of. Not rest like lie down in this hammock and have a margarita. Rest like take my yoke and learn from me. Work with me. Follow me. Dallas Willard says the secret to the easy yoke is the intelligent, informed, unyielding resolve to live as Jesus lived in all aspects of life. Antioch, following Jesus is hard, but not following Jesus is way harder. Wherever you find yourself, whatever questions, whatever doubts, whatever fears, it's okay. There's a safe place to ask those questions. God's a safe God to bring those questions to. But ultimately, I'm telling you from my own experience and from the witness of Christ himself and this long story of the family of God of which we're part, who else are you going to trust? What philosopher, what politician, what thinker, what writer, what artist, what person, who are you going to trust more than Jesus? Father God, we are grateful for the life that you've given us in your son. We're grateful that you have washed us, you have cleansed us, you have forgiven us, and that you are forming us, you are building us, you are shaping us into people who look like your son. God, we want to be soft and pliable clay in your hands. We want to be people who aren't content to nod our heads in agreement with the words of scripture, but people who in desperate trust find ourselves clinging to you. Where else would we go? So I pray, God, that this word would not weigh heavy on our hearts as a burden, but that we would hear the very heart of Jesus to come to find rest, to learn how to really live, that we may be people who bring glory to your name, In Jesus' name.